Welcome to the Academy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to sharing rich content for the purpose of spiritual growth. I'm your host, Claire McKeever Burgett, and I serve as the Associate Director of the Academy for Spiritual Formation, an international ministry of the Upper Room. The Academy creates transformative space for people to connect with God, self, others, and creation for the sake of the world. This month's podcast offers both audio and visual ways to listen and view it, because in June 2018, Academy Director Johnny Sears visited with his friend and mentor Parker Palmer at the Palmer Home in Madison, Wisconsin, and we were lucky enough to get to film it. Witnessing their conversation live and now sharing it with you a few months later is one of the great gifts of my life. Parker and Johnny talked about everything from vulnerability to what makes a good leader, to how to sustain the work of the Academy for the next 35 years. What follows is an offering from their conversation on spiritual friendship and shared vocation, in hopes that their mutual dialogue about life, love, work, passion, leadership, and spirituality might enrich your own lives and the conversations that comprise them. Parker Palmer is the founder and senior partner emeritus of the Center for Courage and Renewal, and a world-renowned writer, speaker, and activist who focuses on issues in education, community, leadership, spirituality, and social change. He has reached millions worldwide through his nine books, including Let Your Life Speak, The Courage to Teach, A Hidden Wholeness, and Healing the Heart of Democracy. The episode picks up with Johnny asking Parker about his friendship and connection with John McGabgab, founding member of the Academy and editor of Weavings, a journal for the Christian spiritual life, and Henry Nowen. The friendship between Parker, Henry, and John served as a catalyst, an inspiration, and a motivation for the beginnings of the Academy 35 years ago. Listen and watch on, beloveds, and enjoy. I'd be curious if you would uh, share some more about those stories yeah. of, of you and John and Henry together at Pendle Hill. Mm-hmm. Like, well, those are good memories. Yeah. Those are wonderful memories. And it, it turns out that Pendle Hill was a nexus for me of a number of connections that ended up converging in the Academy for Spiritual Formation because one of the founders of Pendle Hill was Douglas Steer. Um, This Pendle Hill being a Quaker living learning community adult study center uh, near Philadelphia. It was founded by some uh, weighty friends, as they (laughs) like to call them in in the Quaker community. Uh, Rufus Jones and Douglas Steer being among, Thomas Kelly being among those people. And Douglas was, when I became dean of studies at Pendle Hill, he was still very active on the board and uh, a conversation partner, he and his wife Dorothy, with with me, I, I I was mentored by them, in many ways. So there's that connection. Um, I met Henry Nowen um, somewhere in the mid to late '70s when I was uh, dean of studies at Pendle Hill, and uh, <clears throat> we met because the Lilly Endowment had started giving grants in spirituality. And it sometimes happens at a foundation, they start giving grants and then, or start receiving proposals. 
and then realize that they don't really know what they're talking about. <laughs> it just happens that way. Yeah. It's a human thing. And um, so they had the aspiration, but they needed some help discerning among these proposals, um, which, are the, which are the ones we ought to fund and which are, ought we not. And so they invited, I think it was eight or 10 people to cloister themselves in a hotel in New York City for about three or four days and read hundreds of applications. Wow. And uh, I was one of those people, and Henry was one of those people. And so it was in that kind of intense experience of, you know, talking about the content of the applications and the aims of the program and how a program like that, a spiritually oriented program, might fit in the society of the day. It was in that context that Henry and I became friends and ongoing conversation partners. So the next thing I knew, Henry was offering, as he always did so generously, to write the foreword for my first book, The Promise of Paradox, which was published by little Ave Maria Press at Notre Dame. So I it was going to have a, <laughs> I was going to thank you, um, it was going to have a largely Catholic audience, and at first anyway. And Henry, you know, just this generous guy, um, uh, said, I'd love to write the foreword to that. And he wrote this beautiful, beautiful foreword to The Promise of Paradox, which sort of, you know, which he was established writer by then. He wasn't all that much older than I, but it really helped put that book on the map because he was well known already, I think, for reaching out or, or one, I can't quite remember one of those books. And then he, at that time, he was teaching at Yale. And he said, I have an idea, which, which as I think back on it, was really a, an audacious big idea. He said, why don't I come down to Pendle Hill every other week for a full day, and <clears throat> you and I sit and talk about our shared interests in spirituality, education, and community. And then yeah. I'll do that every other week for an academic year. We ended up, do, ended up doing it for two academic years. And he said, between our meetings, we will each write memos to each other. And in those days, you stuck it in an envelope and stuck it yeah. in the mail. Yeah. You didn't pop it in an email. And then our next conversation will spring off that memo which was a brilliant you know, way to proceed. And the next thing I knew, I think it was on our second of those meetings, he said, I'd like to bring my assistant along, my teaching assistant and the, the fellow who helps me with my writing, John Mogabgab. I said, great. And, and uh, you know, I quickly became friends with John. I mean, he was one of the most winsome people on the face of the yeah. earth and so, so profoundly spiritually grounded and so bright and I was just learning like crazy from John. Yeah. And he became part of that conversation uh, over a two-year period and it influenced both Henry's writing and my writing. And so um, after, after a bit I wrote uh, The Company of Strangers and then I wrote To Know As We Are Known and both of those books were really heavily influenced by that. And then along the way, uh, I also spent time at the Institute for Ecumenical and Cultural Research, where Marjorie and John were, uh, were getting to know each other, and I was getting to know Marjorie. And of course, I love her very, very much too, and have worked with her in various ways over the years. So 
Yeah, lot, lots of connections. And, and the last one I'll mention is someone I never met, but have always felt like he knew me and I knew him. And that's Thomas Merton, yeah. with whom right. I have this kind of like um, spiritual connection or something. Yeah. Uh, I don't even know how to name it, but um, uh, a, a kind of friendship with someone you never met who you feel like when you, re I feel like when I read him, he, he, he somehow knew me before I knew myself, you know, and his writing helped me know myself better and was grounding and reassuring and in all kinds of ways. And then along comes Weavings and I started writing for them. Right. Always been grateful to Weavings for helping me become a better writer and <laughs> to start put, putting some of my stuff out in the, in the public sphere. So, so that's, that's part of the story. Yeah. I love, uh, all of those relationships here. Um, Merton is something, uh, the way you describe that relationship with Merton is uh, something I share. Um, it's one of the things I think, uh, that quickly resonated, um, with me when I first began encountering your work, uh, is that same love of Merton. And, and, and it felt that it, my relationship with Merton began through Glenn Henson. Mm -hmm. uh, I was taking, uh, classes at the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, um, exploring a sense of a call to ministry that, you know, took an interesting path, but, um, mm -hmm. cause you had been on a, in a different career. I, I started off as an engineer, mm -hmm. uh, professionally. So I have a master's degree in engineering and was working for Lexmark international and designing laser printers. Mm -hmm. So uh, this was a natural career move for you. Oh, clearly <laughs> <laughs> very obvious uh, trajectory. Yeah. Um, so, um, and along that way, I, I um, actually found out about spiritual direction as, you know, and grew up growing up Baptist, I knew, never knew what that was. Mm -hmm. um, when I discovered that, um, it, 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 was, it was such a gift and such a, a lifeline because it was a place where I could be held mm -hmm. and listened to and... Uh, ask the questions without anybody expecting me to resolve them quickly. Right. And what a um, gift. that was, and, you know, this is in my, um, sort of late twenties. Um, and so I end up deciding to take classes at, at this new seminary, um, as a way of, uh, exploring a sense of call to ministry. Mm -hmm. Um, and the, First class I take is a class called Ministers as Spiritual Guides, and Glenn Henson is mm -hmm. is the teacher. So Glenn knew Merton mm -hmm. um, uh, personally, and um, he t took a group of us to Gethsemane. So I got to mm -hmm. be at the Abbey of Gethsemane and um, began reading this work, and it was just it, it just opened so many things for me. Mm -hmm. um, but Merton, I particularly felt a deep resonance with. It was like you know there was this, this connection to the soul. Here was someone who um, wrote so deeply and honestly about right. his own struggles, right. about the struggles of the world, um, and uh, would just hold those tensions. Right. Uh, you know, Merton hated, seemed to me, I think Merton hated um, easy answers. Absolutely. Uh, he, and, he said, 
I am traveling toward my destiny in the belly of a paradox, which, which means in the belly of unanswerable questions. Right. And, and there was something about that that was just um, freeing mm -hmm. uh, for me. And so Merton has kind of always been mm -hmm. one of my, mm -hmm. my spiritual guides, even though mm -hmm. I came along many years after he had already uh, passed away. I was reading him once, and um, he, uh, he writes about a, a Muslim mystic uh, of the Middle Ages. I can't quite remember the century, 14th maybe. The, the, his name was Al-Halaj. Yeah. And in, it, people who know the mystical side of Muslim spirituality know Al-Halaj very well. And Merton, who obviously never knew Al-Halaj, said, my relationship to him could be called a friendship, a love, a rescue. Mm. And um, I, I did an essay recently for uh, a volume on Merton called A Friendship, A Love, A Rescue, because wow. that's, how, that's how he served for me, and yeah. obviously for lots and lots and lots of people. And the other, you know, the other piece of Merton, which I'm sure we'll, we'll return to this theme at some point in our conversation, Johnny, the other piece of Merton is that here's this guy tucked away in the wooded hills of Kentucky, right. um, seeming to most people to have escaped from the mm -hmm. rigors of the world. And yet he writes so compellingly about race and about war and ab about the great social issues of our time after he gets through his period of rather thin piosity, right. which embarrassed him later in life. Yeah. Um, he, he, he said, there's a bunch of books I wish I hadn't written because yeah. they now embarrass me. Have uh, you seen the little graphs that he makes of all of his books yeah. and grades them? Yeah, number, yeah. number one, The Way of Shuang Tzu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Taoist yeah, uh, yeah. uh, tales that, yeah. you know, he helped translate, uh, yeah. but he learned so much from the East yeah. that illumined his own tradition. But here's, but he's still, despite the fact that he's a monastic tucked away, he's regarded by people in the peace movement and in the racial justice movement right. as their as a leader, as a patron saint. And and so he, he modeled for a lot of us what it means to have an inner life that isn't narcissistic, right. that doesn't disappear right. in into the, the, you know, in, in, into the, the ego yeah. and, and into just, just kind of feathering your own nest. But it actually loops around and comes back out into the world, which is a big question in the spiritual life. Right. You know, I, I like when I talk with folks about this, I, I always say my favorite book title in recent years is a collection of poems by Tony Hoagland called What Narcissism Means to Me. <laughs> and yeah, I think that it's a it's a great jibe, you know, in mm -hmm. terms of a society where a lot of people are turning inward and never coming back out. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if if you can't get out of the rabbit hole, it ain't spirituality. Right. It's escape. It's something uh, pathological, really, uh, in terms of withdrawing from the world. But Merton modeled a way. Yeah of having a spiritual life that actually loops back out, I call it life on the Mobius strip, yeah. to engagement to, with the world. Right. The, the way I've phrased it is the contemplative life 
always springs from community. Mm-hmm. Um, may lead into solitude, but it, it, the genuine contemplative life leads back uh, to community always, always. In, into a deeper engagement with the world. Always, um, it is not escapism. Yeah, um, no, not one of those paradoxes. You know that Merton was so fond of. I don't know that he names this specifically, but I, I always phrase it in terms: were we were we born for community? Absolutely, yes. We we you know we we couldn't exist or survive without it. Were we born for solitude? Absolutely, yes. Because ultimately, life becomes a journey that we can only take alone. Yeah. And and so there's no contradiction there. Right. It's both and. What I, what I love about it is there's just something beautiful about the way the, the Holy Spirit, that's the way I would phrase it, the Holy Spirit works mm-hmm. through relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, right. it, it, you know, no... You didn't set out when you came together and started having those conversations to create anything particularly. No. Um, it was no. it was about the spiritual friendship. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, as you know, Johnny, I've I've always felt <clears throat> that when you meet someone that you recognize as a friend, mm-hmm. <clears throat> you've also met someone who, with whom you have a shared vocation, mm-hmm. in the most generic sense of that term, and I think that. Um, it, you know, it may not be the, 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 it may not manifest itself. It probably won't manifest itself in the same way, but the vocation will be there. That's that's sort of the reason you're friends. Yeah. You recognize that this person is somehow on earth for more or less the same reason that I am, yeah. and you start getting clues about yourself as well as clues about them, and about the shared work that you're being called to do. And I definitely, you know, as you know, believe in callings. I mean, I, I yeah. think you don't, I think vocation is a gift to be received rather than a goal to be achieved, to yeah. use one of Henry's tropes. Um, and so when John and Henry and I were meeting in the late 70s, and of course we were meeting in a social context where Vietnam was cranking up and race was very much on yeah. the table and yeah. the women's movement was starting to build and and there was there was a very complicated thing going on in the spiritual life of this country here. But in the midst of that, here are three spiritual friends. What does it what does it mean to be a spiritual friend? Well, it, I think it means a lot more than um, you know. If you have a problem, you can come to me, and I'll give you uh, deep listening and honest, open questions and. We may meditate together, we may pray together, we may work on various modalities of discernment. But I think, I think at a very deep level to have a spiritual friend is to have encouragement to pursue what's often a countercultural path. Um, I don't know any um, founding stories of the world's great religions that aren't profoundly countercultural. Right. Right. If they aren't countercultural, they're political or conventional. Right. And nobody remembers those stories. They're just boring. <laughs> and, 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 and they just perpetuate the status quo. But, um, yeah, Jesus was quite a countercultural person. And well, the political stories are about winning or losing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and so somebody's always losing, and so somebody's always disappointed, and, and yeah. just, it just buries the issues. Which are going to come back later. Yeah, and the spiritual stories are, if you, if you seek your life, you'll lose it. And if you're willing to lose your life for the sake of something greater, you'll find it. And that's, that's not how politics works, for the most part. So, 
we, Henry and, and I think the Academy for Spiritual Formation um, grew out of um, that, that sort of rich um, seedbed of, of spiritual friendship and this overlap between, um, between friendship and vocation. Yeah. In, a, in a complex way, I, I was not part of the formation of, right. the, of the Academy for Spiritual Formation. Not directly. Right. But I was, I, I was doing, I was pursuing a similar vocation or ministry in different path, along a different path. As it turned out, m my ministry um, was largely to the secular world. It began in secular higher education. And my task was, was to find ways to translate the, the spiritual concerns I had about the condition of education and the condition in which it was leaving students, yeah. to translate that into terms that would be acceptable at a, at a class A research university, right? Right. Where, right. where there's not even a chapel because everybody would go up and smoke about church state issues, right. you know? And, and, and so that was a very different mission than the one perceived by the founders of the academy. But it was the same vocation. Right. It, it, was, it was ministry um, under, a, under a different flag. And, and so I'm, th that was a seedbed time. But I think it's really important to understand that spiritual friendship, which is, I know, part of what you guys prepare people for, and what I've always needed from yeah. others and wanted to offer others, is really about that soul-deep encouragement to walk a path for which the world doesn't offer much encouragement. In, in fact, the world says, that's crazy. You know, you're, that's not a good career move, right? <laughs> right? And, and, uh, and, and you have to say, well, I'm not in search of a career. I'm in search of a vocation. And yeah. I'm pursuing clues that I, I know, I understand nobody else can, can see them or hear them. Um, my family can't, you know, yeah. my parents can't, my friends can't. I mean, I, I got all those questions like, what in heaven's name are you doing right. with your life, Parker? You have right. a PhD from Berkeley. Why did you walk away from academia, become a community organizer and for five years in Washington, D.C., and then, you know, join this hippie commune at Kendall Hill <laughs> where you're eating granola and garbanzo beans all the time. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, to, to quote, our good friend, Sister Elaine Prevole yeah. of the Sisters of Loretto, who was also part of this picture for me yeah. because she was, she was at Pendle Hill. I invited her as dean to come as a teacher for several years. She was a wonderful, magnificent teacher. But she, she always said, well, vocation is about, I can't not do it. Yeah. I, I can't give you a good rational reason why. Yeah. Like this is gonna lead to a big salary or right. to high status right. or leverage and impact, but I can't not do it. And when I talk with young people today about vocation, I, I'd say, is there anything you can't not do? Because if you can name that, then, then you've got a powerful clue to your vocation. Yeah. And I, th I think that's what part of what spiritual formation is all about.
In reading a recent meditation on finding God in the company of our life's best friends, Stephen Batchelor writes of these spiritual friends that their task is not to make themselves indispensable, but redundant. Their task is not to make themselves indispensable, but redundant. I've been meditating on this wisdom for days now, and it's mingled so beautifully with the wisdom Parker and Johnny share throughout their conversation that I'm beginning to sense that along with finding the thing I can't not do in terms of my vocation, I am also charged with finding the people I can't not hear. That is not to say I need to listen only to those who speak the loudest. Rather, it is to ask of myself whose wisdom plays in my mind, body, and spirit over and over and over again. Who in my life is redundant with their love? Perhaps just as it is with vocation, it also is with spiritual friends. These people and this calling are those I can't ignore even when I try. An ever-present invitation to a repetitive song, a familiar dance, a recitable poem. Finding in the familiarity and the redundancy a magical spark that makes it anything but boring. This is the life I long to live. These are the people I long to know. May it ever be so. To hear more from faculty and wisdom guides like Parker Palmer, join us at the next five-day or two-year academy. And to learn more from Parker and Johnny's conversation, tune in next month, November 13th to be exact, for another audio-visual episode from their time together. For all of this and more, visit academy.upperroom.com. Thank you.